bist. Who's gonna crack first? <laughs> oh man. I was waiting. I was like, maybe we should just stare at the screen for a second. And then I thought, we have way too much to study about today. So here we go. This is Ben. This is Matt. This is Mike. And it's all probably completely wrong. And it doesn't make a difference. We want to welcome you to the study on Revelation where we are laying down the foundation. And guys, we actually, we have more than one listener. And it's more than just Matt's wife, Lori. Well, we always had two because my mom listened. Also. Okay, she loves see, me. Mike's mom, Matt's wife, we are just, we're <laughs> roll, well, right now then, we have at least three listeners, guys, because I got an email from Brad Pribinow saying that he listened <laughs> to our, our Bible study, but that he's going to have to graciously decline making us some intro music because he's very busy. And we get that. As the dean of the seminary, he's a busy dude. But we appreciate him tuning in. And uh, Brad, if you happen, I'm sorry, Dr. Pribernow, if you happen to be listening to this Bible study and you send us another email, this time Mike's going to send you a dollar in the mail. Mike Hussey will literally send you a dollar <laughs> in the mail if you email us again and say that you listened to at least up until this point right now. Um so still, we're waiting to hear from Nick Joyel. Uh, maybe he will write us a sweet, jive-worthy uh, intro to our Bible study. But we'll wait and see. So Nick Joyel, let's go, bro. Listen to the, listen to the study and see if you can have it. All right. Uh, so today we are talking about – here, let me give you a little bit of a better intro. So when I was younger, all right, we're going to go way back. When I was younger, my mom, Janice Natal, God bless her for putting up with a kid like me, all right? Yeah, uh, seriously. <laughs> uh, she used to encourage me to use larger words in sentences, and if I could use them, I would get a quarter. And so the word that we are coming up to today is one of those quarter words that if I was younger and I used it in a sentence, I would definitely get a quarter from my mother. So long story short, that's a great intro for today. We're going to be talking about what is eschatology. And if you don't know what eschatology is, buckle up. Because we are in for the ride of your life as we explain it to you today. And so we're excited that you were able to join us for such an amazing study that we have planned for you. And I believe that, Matt, you're going to open us in a word of prayer. All right. I was kind of expecting there to the sounds of Pee Wee's Playhouse for the word of the day. Oh! oh See, this, once again, this is why we need to have uh, background music and also uh, we need to have sound clips that we can, like, tap into uh, in order to make things a little bit more enjoyable. So once again, I dropped the ball on it. Hopefully by next week, I'll be a little bit more prepared with sound clips that I can impute into stuff. We'll see how it goes. All right. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for another opportunity to gather around your word and to be fed. Uh, and we just ask that your Holy Spirit would be working in our minds and in our hearts, 
you'd help us to understand the scriptures, that you would uh, show us your wonderful plan of the Messiah, the Redeemer of the world, Jesus, your Son. And uh, I just pray that uh, you'd help us to understand what eschatology is. And uh, may this uh, help to open up uh, other parts of the scriptures to see how they all fit together. And that all of this is a part of your one gracious plan and, and work in this world uh, on our behalf uh, through Jesus. And so, Lord, bless our study and uh, give us wisdom and uh, clarity in our speaking. And uh, keep us from error as well, Lord, as we uh, attempt to talk about uh, some things that can be challenging or confusing and uh, using some big words and trying to understand those things. So help us, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we started the video today, it was decided that I'm in charge of translating all the Greek. Right, Ben? Yep, go for it. So I'll start us out then uh, because eschatology, the word itself, um, comes from the Greek, um, from the Greek word hekastos, uh, which means last, and ology, which is the study of. So our big word eschatology breaks down to being the study of the last things. But uh, eschatology is much larger than just the definition of the word, isn't it, guys? Yeah, and that's uh, one thing that we should keep in mind, I think. Um, because we hear that, we hear doctrine of the last things. And so, you know, I guess we could always just ask ourselves, well, last, last things from what perspective? You know, because depending on where we are in history, last things can take on different... Uh, a different reference point. Um, so, but sometimes I think because because the word itself, the two parts of the one word eschatology means doctrine of last things, we kind of just focus in on, you know, the so-called end times, right? And so we only concern ourselves with that which is future to us, or, you know, we might uh, talk about things like, you know, on signs of the times or, you know, antichrist or whatever, you know, and we'll talk about some of those things in a later episode as well. But um, so sometimes I think we kind of miss the the scope of eschatology because we're so focused in on last things. Um, and so what do I want to say about that? Um, can I jump in here, Ben, and maybe yeah. while you think about it? So yeah, can, you hold, can you hold up that book by Riddlebarger? Um, yes. I, know, I know you've got it right on hand. I was rereading re this. This is a great book, A Case for Amillennialism. And um, uh, Kim Riddlebarger was saying in there that uh, we often make this mistake um, in studying eschatology to think about it, like Ben's saying, only as the end times. Um, and even it, when we study systematic theology, where you organize the Bible by topics, um, people tend to put eschatology at the very end, just like the book of Revelation. And maybe that's why we think about it that way. Uh, but uh, Kim uh, points out in that book that um, when we actually study biblical theology and go through the Bible, we, we realize that uh, the whole Bible is actually kind of a book about eschatology. It's all pointing forward in, in the Old Testament in prophecy um, and, and then um, in the New Testament, you know, the fulfillments of those prophecies uh, in Jesus and, and then talking about uh, some more prophecy about the future. But throughout all of it, we've got this focus on the last things and it's all the whole Bible is driving towards 
this salvation plan of God and and what He is doing in in our timeline and in our world and in in us. And so, um, I, maybe that's helpful to maybe open up the scope of the study of eschatology to the whole Bible. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, so I wanna, yeah, we'll come back to that in a in a sec. Um, but yeah, it was good to, that you also mentioned that eschatology, uh, eschatology being part of you know like a systematic theology and such. And so I think it's important for us to understand that you know um, eschatology doesn't just stand on its own. It's not. It's not really like uh, you know you can just kind of pick and choose uh, which. Uh, viewpoints you want and then tack them onto you the theology that you already hold um, because it's not it's not a thing in itself if that makes sense but it is utterly dependent upon the underlying theology so the way that you approach your views on eschatology is very much going to be informed and driven by uh, how you understand the rest of scripture how you are interpreting the rest of scripture how you understand what the core uh, theological teachings of scripture is um, and so those things, you know, you could think of those as the foundation, right? And that's going to drive uh, everything else that flows from it. And eschatology, in some ways, you can see as kind of the capstone, in a sense. Um, not that it doesn't have anything to do with foundational things. But, you know, especially when we talk about that which is future to us or, or whatever, we can't just pick and choose uh, what we like. Um, because necessarily, it comes with baggage it comes with a theological system behind it um and so it just kind of reminded me of uh, i heard someone you know basically say once that you know as a when he was growing up that you know he'd have different discussions and such about eschatology and there are all these questions and so on and then you know sensing the call to become a pastor he went to seminary and he was like oh well if i learn the if i learn greek in seminary then you know i'll be able to know definitively which which view is correct or whatnot um and then he found out that it didn't really work that way um and and it doesn't because it's not just it's not just something that like knowing the greek language for example is going to answer for you because it's built into uh the entire message of scripture everything that is going on from genesis to revelation has eschatology woven into it and so you know, we can't just jump to the end and say, okay, I think this and this about future events. Um, those things don't stand on their own. They are necessarily tied to a theology and it may end up being a theology that you would entirely reject. Um, you just don't necessarily know that it's there as the foundation of those viewpoints. Um, I don't know. Is that too vague? No, but I think that I think that that's exactly why our, we started our study with these first four lessons we didn't just hop right into revelation chapter one and just said hey let's boogie you know there it's important to realize that there is a foundation that needs to be built and depending upon where your foundation lies that's where your interpretation of the book of revelation actually is and so in order to understand that i i think that's great that you pointed that out ben i don't think it was too vague um to say any of that but to literally point out you know your view on scripture is going to color the way that you understand the book of Revelation. So a solid biblical understanding of scripture in its entirety will then lend itself to a greater understanding to the book of Revelation, right? 
Yeah. And then, and there's things too, like, you know, just common things that, that come up with this. So like, you know, whatever, whatever you think about antichrist or, you know, um, the millennium or what, what have you, these things that come up over and over again in discussions of eschatology, uh, what do you think of whatever you think about Israel and Israel's place in, you know, say uh, biblical prophecy and such like all of that, they don't just stand on their own, right? There is a theology behind it. So one that, uh, so depending on how you view, you know, the millennium, for example, is it a, a literal thousand years in a physical kingdom or not is dependent upon how you understand the rest of scripture. Uh, right. And I, I want to, as you're going through that, Ben, let me, let me just hop in really quick. I want to encourage people that if you're listening to Ben and you're as confused as Mike Hussey is right now, that is perfectly okay because we're going to go through everything that Ben just mentioned. If you're like, I don't have, I don't have a knowledge of any of that stuff. I don't know where I fall in that spectrum at all. And I want to let you know that that's okay because we are going to spend more time talking through those points as we go. So Mike Hussey, you can take a deep breath, bud, because we're oh, going to get thank there. Thank goodness. Promise. All right, Ben, sorry. I just had, I had to do that for you. No, so that's, so that's, that's fine. Um, yeah. So even, even like something like, you know, whether or not you, you think that there will be a, a physical rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem is built upon a, per, a certain understanding of scripture and interpretation of scripture. So, so just trying to make the point that they don't stand on their own. There's a deep foundation underneath it. And if we don't understand what's going on underneath that, um, we kind of just have a, a whole bunch of conflating and conflicting stuff all kind of jumbled together. So anyways, um, all that being said, coming back to what, to Matt, what you were saying, uh, I guess I would give a kind of a basic working definition of eschatology um, is quite simply the unfolding of God's promises concerning the salvation that he would bring through his Messiah, through Jesus, right? So eschatology is all about Christ. So just as we talked about last week with all of scriptures about Jesus, well, that's true also of eschatology. It is all about Jesus. And so if we construct uh, eschatological views that basically leave Jesus by the wayside um, or flatly contradict what he says, uh, we're, we're in trouble and we're getting off the rails. So, you know, eschatology is focused on Christ. So it begins then really in Genesis chapter three, right? And we have right after uh, Adam and Eve sinned and, and sin has come into the world, God gives them a promise, right? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, right? And there's not a whole lot of detail there. It's pretty vague. It's just a very general statement. But from that point forward, God will continue to unfold that promise and he'll make it more specific and more explicit all the way to the point that you can have guys like Simeon in the temple. When he sees Jesus, he confesses that this is the Lord's Christ whom he had been waiting for, right? That's why he, we have the Nunc Dimittis, the song of Simeon, right? He can now depart in peace for he has seen the Lord's salvation, right? A light to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon was looking for the Messiah. He understood by faith the promise that God had been giving from the beginning. Um, we have guys like Philip and Nathaniel, right, who are looking for the Messiah to come. If we think about that in John, uh, was it John chapter 1, when Jesus is calling the disciples and 
Philip comes to Nathaniel, what does he say to him? Does he say, hey, come here, this, you know, this guy who sounds really interesting or he's really cool? No, he says, come, we have found the one of whom Moses and the prophet spoke of, right? So they were looking for Messiah. They recognized God's Redeemer is coming, the promises that God had woven throughout uh, the entirety of the Old Testament. So we begin in Genesis. Um, ben, don't and, you think that that declaration of who Jesus is basically would have been, if we were to put that in modern terms, like, yo, come out, come and check out this cool guy. No? Okay, fine. Sorry. I'll mute myself again. My bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I, as Ben was talking about this, it, it's such a cool, dramatic thing to think about how what an amazing experience that would have been uh, to, you know, hold the baby Jesus after all that waiting. And, and uh, it, this is such a beautiful dramatic story that we have in the scriptures. And I hope that you uh, pick up on that. Um, one thing that I've loved using with my kids is the Jesus storybook Bible. And, uh, and that is such an amazing uh, little summary of the, this gospel message. Uh, in the scriptures, um, and and I'd recommend it to you, except for the part about baptism. I don't really like that part, but but the rest of it is ser seriously some of the best stuff that I've read in this, and it it's uh, pointing out that that the whole book is is not about a bunch of heroes, a bunch of good people, a bunch of this or that, but it's about one hero, Jesus, who is being prophesied about, and then he comes on the scene. And it's, it's so, so cool. Um, in Hebrews chapter one, there's a verse, uh, a couple of verses that we're going to hear a bunch of times as we go through this study, I think. Um, but it says this long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And Ben just talked about and quoted about the, that the prophets were prophesying about Jesus um, but then it says, but in these last days, so we are in the last days, you know, eschatology, last things, right? The connection there. But he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so Jesus has been involved with creation of everything since before everything. And uh, he is the heir of all things. Uh, and, and he is the one speaking to us in the New Testament here and the, and even the rest of the New Testament writers are pointing back to him. And, and, uh, and so this is again, all about Jesus. And we're going to see more about that uh, throughout, especially our lesson today. All right. So eschatology, not just the book of revelation. That's not all we're talking about. We're not just talking about, um, the second coming of Christ, right? It's, it's all about uh, God's plan of salvation being revealed. And as we, as we look at his plan of salvation, we find a couple of different covenants within scripture. Anybody got a good definition for covenant for me? Because that's a church word, right? We don't use that outside of church. We, we don't say I'm going to go make a covenant with someone. Not generally. <laughs> not, not anymore, at least, right? So what, what, is a, what is a covenant? And, uh, you know, maybe we start there before we talk about the old and new covenants in Scripture. Um, anybody got a good one for me? Otherwise, I can make one up on the fly. 
Well, they're kind of different. They're different forms of covenants that we see throughout, you know, history. And, um, but I guess if I had to boil it down and give it a very simple definition, like the way that the scriptures use it concerning what God is doing with, you know, say Abraham, for example, and so on is he's making a promise. Um, and so, and he is binding himself to that promise that he will not break. And so, um, yeah, covenant could be seen in terms of promise. Um, there are, so there are some covenants that we would say are bilateral. They go both ways. Both parties are responsible to do something to maintain this agreement or whatever. Um, but we have unilateral covenants, which one party is responsible. And that's what we see with God doing with Abraham, for example, is he's making all the promises and doing all the work. So, so for my confirmation kids, Ben, I tell them that there's a unicorn covenant and a binicorn oh. covenant. Okay. <laughs> they see, as soon as I say unicorn and binicorn, they laugh and then they remember unilateral and bilateral and it just works. <laughs> That's amazing. And I, so the other thing too is while we don't use the term covenant that much, marriage is a covenant it is probably the most well-known covenant that most people who are listening to us, all three of them uh, would be accustomed to. Uh, so I think when, but like Ben was saying, there are two different kinds, the unicorn kind and then the binicorn kind. Uh, and when we think about marriage, we think about a, a bilateral covenant between a man, a man and a woman. And so we think of, uh, of marriage as that promise. They are bound together uh, in the promise of marriage. But then we hear about a unilateral covenant and spoiler alert, spoiler alert, those are the best covenants because it's, it's all gain, baby. Like the, the covenant that God made with us. So good. We get we all the good stuff and he gets all the bad stuff, man. That's oh, And I'm going to freeze, aren't I? I you did freeze a little, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all right. That's where I'm going to stop. And I'm going to use the unicorn and the binicorn all the time from now it on. Just, I mean, as soon as you say that, it just clicks for people. I don't understand why. Totally. That's like uh, are listening to, and they'll tell me I'm wrong. But that's like uh, we we're, I do another podcast with uh, Ryan Nielsen, and we had somebody on the other day, and he talks about uh, setting up a pros and a cons list with his kids, and he calls the pros and the cons list a yuck duck and a yay duck. So he's like, tell me what the yuck ducks are. I'm like, oh man. And now I can't stop thinking about yuck ducks and yay ducks and unicorns and binicorns. It's gonna awesome. be man. This is. I'm going to have to make one of those, you know, the super fluty comment. I'm going to yeah. make a unicorn binicorn thing. And, oh, you and should. Gonna, oh, it's going to yeah. be great. All right. So, so when we talk about the unilateral covenant, we're generally talking about the Abrahamic covenants, right? The promise given to Abraham. Um, and that promise, uh, God said he was going to multiply Abraham, make him a great nation, give him all these descendants, you know, bless those that bless him, curse those that curse him. And then the last part of it, you know, we talked about it being all about Jesus. Uh, make him a blessing to the entire world. And through that line of Abraham came Christ. So that Old Testament unilateral covenant of God to Abraham is incredibly significant because it's another way that God is revealing that promise that he first gave in Genesis 3.15 that would, you know, find its fulfillment in Christ and his, his sacrificial death and perfect life and, and ultimately, of course, his return too, since we're talking about last and last things. And in that one, um, 
they went through this covenant ritual where they, you know, cut these animals in, in two and laid them out. And normally there'd be two parties, the two parties making this covenant agreement walking through. But what was it, a smoking pot? And what was the other yeah. thing? Burning anyway, oven or something. Burning oven, something like that. Uh, but they both of these things uh, passed through um, in... Uh, they were both represent, or they were representing that God was playing the part of both parties in this covenant, and he and passed through there, and and that's a covenant that God then uh, holds Himself to. He He's going to hold up like both ends of the deal, which is why Mike Natal is saying this is so great. Um, but then, like in the like the bilateral, I think that would be more like um, when when God gave the 10 commandments to the people. And then afterwards um, they said, we will do this. We'll keep these laws. And so they were taking the other part of it and then they were holding themselves to it. And God's like, well, yeah. And if you do, everything will be good. But, <laughs> you know, can they uphold their end of the deal? And they can't, oh, by the way. Uh, uh, Oh man, if you're going to say something like that, you got to put spoiler alert in front of that. Yeah, sorry, spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> they can't do it. Uh, but if they could, it would have been great. But I mean, that then connects with what Paul is saying. If you're going to live by the law, you're going to be judged according to the law. And, and uh, so that's why that's not such a great kind of covenant for us. Um, and yet at the same time, we know that God was still right and good and true in that covenant as well. It's just that we don't uphold our end of the bargain or whatever, you know, on this. And so that's kind of the difference. God is still good in both, but, um, and they are connected to each other, you know, the different kinds of covenants that God works and, and they all work according to his greater purpose, but, um, yeah. yeah, I think we'll maybe if I can do it rightly, perhaps uh, <laughs> we we should be able to see that you know from the New Testament that really the the covenant that God makes with with Abraham, for example, that unilateral covenant that runs all the way through, and it's kind of in the background, as it were, even when the the old covenant, the covenant made at Sinai comes into play that that doesn't remove the covenant that God made with Abraham that that promise of salvation and forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of faith is there through the entirety of the old covenant as well um, and so it's not it's not so much that one came to the end when when the other came into play but it's really more that the old covenant is put into place for a time uh, to direct the people of Israel, as it, as it were, the people under the old covenant, to teach them to look for Jesus is really kind of how it's going. Um, because what remains, finally, in the end, is that same covenant that God made with Abraham that is fulfilled in Christ, even though the old covenant has fallen away in its fulfillment in Jesus. And so, so, it's, so yeah, they're, they're both there at the same time, like they, there is some overlap. The the covenant with Abraham comes first, and and we'll we'll talk about some of that too because Paul will make a really big deal about that. How um, God's covenant with Abraham came 430 years before the law was even written, before that covenant even came into being. 
right? And, and that same righteousness of faith and so on will remain after the old covenant comes to the end. So um, maybe we're kind of jumping a little further ahead, but, but so we have those, those two ideas there, but we have that one, that one promise of God really over and over again through, through all of it. It doesn't disappear at Sinai. It's still there all the way through from beginning to end. And hopefully we'll be able to see that as we, as we go along. Then I have confidence that you're going to be able to paint that picture for us. <laughs> I'm not a good artist. So <laughs> stick, stick figures. <laughs> well, it's, it's good, Ben, that you brought out um, another term that we're going to talk about, which is, you know, the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant and what they are that promise to Abraham, you know, that stays forever. But when we refer to the old covenant, we're talking about the law given to Moses, right? So when we talk about the new covenant, then let's put a definition to that. What are we talking about? Um, and when did it come in, in, into play? And, you know, how do these covenants relate to one another? And how do they differ as well? Um. Well, we first really get the language of New Covenant in Jeremiah, um, chapter 31, verses 31 and 32, um, which I will read in a second. Okay, so Jeremiah 31, 31 says, and God is speaking here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Um, and he goes on and says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Um, so, oh, I don't know. You kind of get, you know, you get the, the idea. So we have the old covenant that's put in place at Mount Sinai. That's basically, you know, here is here's the law and it's all, you know, kind of external to you and do these things and you'll stay in the land, break this covenant and I'll kick you out. Like I kicked out the people before you, um, which is precisely what happened. Um, so God speaks of a new covenant that will, that he will put into place. And it's, and so in that regard, it's, this is one of the texts that speaks of the differentness between the covenants. It's not like the old covenant, but rather uh, in this covenant, you know, all who are uh, the people of God and there shall know the Lord, their sins will be forgiven. Um, and God speaks of, you know, basically, I don't know, how do I want to say this? That <sighs> basically, you know, this old covenant is broken. You know, you. Israel, you have broken this covenant, and so I'm going to make a new one. And you kind of get the sense there then that it's kind of going back to the, well, back, as it were, to God doing all of the, doing the work. Like, he's going to bring this about because Israel failed 
And, you know, the people of God failed to keep that old covenant. So God's going to do a new thing and he's going to keep the covenant. Um, I don't know if that makes any kind of sense, but. Take our silence as a yes, Ben. Okay. Um, Cause what is it? Let's see here. Uh, but I think it's significant too. I mean, in Jeremiah 31, those passages you just read, there's a little bit of description of what this new covenant is going to be like also. You know, God said he's going to write their, his law in their minds and their hearts. And then I think maybe the, the most significant part comes at the end. You know, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So what's this new covenant going to be about? It's going to be about redemption, right? Yeah, for sure. And then... Um... So in Hebrews chapter 8, gives a little commentary on Jeremiah 31. Um, and so beginning in, in verse 8, um, the author of Hebrews is quoting from Jeremiah, saying that, you know, God finds fault with the old covenant. Um, and so he is going to bring a new covenant. So he repeats what Jeremiah said, you know, that the Lord will bring a new covenant uh, with the house of Israel, it won't be like the old one. Um, and he ends again with, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I'll remember their sins no more. And then the author of Hebrews comments, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is, and growing old is ready to vanish away. So we have the idea that with the coming of this new covenant, uh, that that there are going to be you know, kind of the the markers of the old covenant. So we think of things like the sacrifices that God put in place. So animal sacrifices, we can think about, you know, the tabernacle and the temple building. Um, we can think about the Levitical priesthood, um, you know, the specific land of Israel, um, things like these. We can, we can think of these things, food laws, so on and so forth, right? Um, that are associated with the old covenant because God gave all those things to Israel on Mount Sinai, right? And so those things are coming to an end. So when this new covenant comes, well, then all that old stuff goes away. And what the scriptures teach us is that the new covenant comes in Jesus. I mean, he's very, he's very explicit about this in the Lord's Supper, when he institutes his own supper. Um, in fulfillment of the Passover, he speaks of the blood of the covenant, right? And he takes the words basically right out of Exodus 24. You know, you have the old covenant is described in terms of, you know, the blood of the covenant, the, the animals that was sprinkled on the people. Well, here Jesus is saying, you know, this wine that I have blessed is my blood of the new covenant, right? So Jesus is himself the bringer of the new covenant he is the inaugurator of the new covenant and he does so in his blood right and so with the coming of christ then all that other stuff goes away because he has fulfilled it um i don't know if that's making sense i want a little bit out of order of how i had it written down so it may seem a little choppy but is that is that making sense to tracking with that or anything so maybe to help us uh, talk through this, then, you know, uh, you've been talking about, you know, kind of one, having some problems, Mike, you talked about it being, having been broken by the people and that 
that uh, there were shortcomings of the older covenant and there was this new covenant coming with its great promises of forgiveness being provided. So are they completely separate? Are they like different ways of salvation? Are they different plans of God? What's going on? Um, are they connected at all? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question to, to bring up. Um, and so the, the short answer to that is, is yes, there, there is, uh, there is continuity between the two. Um, so no, they wouldn't be a different way of salvation, but the precisely the way in which they are, you know, uh, similar, or we could say even the same is that their object is the same. Their object is Christ. It is God's redeemer. Um, and so we see all along, um, under the old covenant, for example, that God's promise is attached to, for example, the sacrifices. It's not simply, oh, bring this sacrifice to me and I will reward you with the forgiveness of sins. But it's that I, that God has promised that his grace and mercy are attached to those sacrifices. And so, and, and Israel could be assured of that when they would see the smoke rising from the altar and they would smell it. Um, they could be assured, oh, God is is merciful to us. Um, by the way, if you want to do a really excellent study of all of that, read John Kleinig's commentary on Leviticus in the Concordia Commentary Series. It's fantastic. It's super great. So anyways, um, so, so yeah, we don't want to see them as separate ways of salvation. It wasn't as if, oh, okay, for Old, Co- Old Testament Israel, they were saved by keeping all of these laws. Um, but rather what runs through all of them is God's promise. And we see some of those things, even like, uh, for example, what did I have written down? Oh, like the bronze serpent. We could think about that just, you know, just real briefly. You know, we know the story probably, you know, that um, people are complaining against. briefly go over the story really quick. Okay. So the people of Israel are complaining against God, right? And as a punishment, he sends, uh, venomous snakes amongst the people and it bites a whole bunch of people and they and they die and the people cry out for mercy and god says hey moses put this metal snake on a post and hold it up and if anyone looks at the snake they'll live right so even in that though if we read carefully in that what what is it that draws people to look to the serpent the bronze serpent and so live the promise of god there you go. They had his promise. Do this and you, you know, looking to this serpent, you will be saved, right? And we see later that that is a picture of Jesus, as Jesus will say himself in John chapter 3, that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, right? So it's a picture, so we see it in that, even, you know, type type and shadow and the reality. Um but even going back further than that, you know, with the Passover and the Exodus from Egypt, right? You know, God says, I promise you, if you kill the lamb and you put the blood upon your doorpost, your firstborn will be saved. Right? Are you sure, Ben? I was pretty sure those were magic lambs. Oh. Okay, you're, pro- you're, prob- you're probably right. You're probably right. It was probably the promise of God. <laughs> Yeah, so, so there we have the, the word of God present again, um, creating faith and the obedience. You know, we just we want to be really careful because sometimes we tend to just look at the external action and say, oh, they received these benefits because they obeyed. But first, 
they heard God's word and faith is created and that obedience came out of the word of God. Sorry, what were you going to say, Matt? Well, I was, so I was just trying to um, kind of make some connections here um, uh, and try to process what you're saying. Uh, so we, what we can see with, is that uh, the old covenant, you know, uh, even though we uh, as people have not, you know, kept to it, we, you know, God's people did not follow the Ten Commandments as they were supposed to and as they committed themselves to. We still see that they they point forward with these uh, we call them types um, and and things pointing towards Jesus like the the Lamb who shed his its blood uh, to be on the doorposts you know just like Jesus shed his blood like in First Peter it says you know that he shed his precious blood um, and he was like a uh, like a spotless lamb. Uh, and and so the, that was pointing towards Jesus, and we then we see that Jesus actually fulfilled all of the things in the old covenant, like we were supposed to, but didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the perfect one who lived uh, in in the perfect holy way. He fulfilled all of the Ten Commandments, all of the laws of God, all righteousness. He was the second Adam who lived like Adam was supposed to, but didn't, and. Uh, and all of these things. And so we see that uh, still there is an awesome message of gospel in all of this because of Jesus fulfilling that law uh, and, and that it served a function in pointing to Jesus and pointing out our sin and our need of the Messiah. And then he came and fulfilled it. Um, and so even though it's uh it's no longer a covenant that's in place in the same way with all the temple sacrifices and all the rituals like it was um, in the Old Testament. Still, um, you know, we see we see its effect and and uh, and how it pointed to Jesus and and there are many things that we can still you know learn from that today. So, what's different about uh, the new covenant than uh, as we contrast with the old. Sure. Um, before we do that, just real quick, um, just run through my, my list really. So we, so just to kind of drive home that point, we see, for example, in First Peter chapter one, um, verses ten and eleven, that the salvation that we have in Christ was prophesied beforehand by the prophets of the old covenant. Right. So we have. So this is what Peter is saying. The prophets of old wrote about this very salvation in Jesus Christ. So the old covenant is pointing us to Jesus. Um, Again, in Luke 24, 25 through 27, uh, Jesus interprets for the disciples on the road to Emmaus, all the things concerning himself in all of the old Testament, right? Driving home again. This is about Jesus. This is about the Christ. This is about uh, the one who had come and live, die and rise again from the dead for sinners. Right. Uh, Habakkuk two, four, the righteous shall live by faith. It's not about, Oh, do, do the law and do works and God will forgive you. It's no, the righteous will live by faith. Right. We go back further. Genesis 15, six, Abraham believed God, God counted him as righteousness. This comes into play before there ever was an old covenant as Paul will write 430 years prior to, uh, the giving of the law, Abraham is counted righteousness. He's counted, or is counted 
as righteous because of his faith. Um, and this is before circumcision. Also, St. Paul is going to drive this home again and again and again, read, uh, you know, Galatians and, and Romans, and he's going to hammer this again and again and again. Um, and, and he'll make a big deal about the fact that, um, you know, the promise given to Abraham is not abrogated by the giving of the law. Right. So it doesn't disappear. It's still there. It's still the way that we are saved. Even, under the old covenant, we are still saved by grace through faith in the promise of God, which is faith in Christ. Okay. So we have that again and again and again. Um, and so uh, in Hebrews 11, also very clear, it says that it is by faith that all the saints of old under the old covenant received their commendation before God. They were not counted righteous because they kept the law. They were not counted righteous because they did uh, good works and so on and so forth. Um, they were counted righteous because they trusted the promise of God. Um, and so over and over and over again, we have throughout even the time of the old covenant, faith, 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 faith in the promise of God, faith in Christ, um, even though they didn't know him by name. So we just want to have that uh, solid in our, in our minds that that's the continuity. It's all about Christ. It's all about faith in the promise of God. Okay. So the discontinuity, right? So, um, basically a good place to go. Hebrews chapter 10, I think verses, uh, one through 18, but just as a summary, um, the author of Hebrews speaks of the things of the law. We can hear there, the old covenant are shadows of what was to come, but not the realities, right? So he establishes for us that under the old covenant, what we have are the shadows, the pictures of the reality, but they're not the reality themselves. And so in another place, uh, he will say, you know, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, right? So it was never the case that shedding the blood of an animal actually forgave sins. The whole point was that God attached his promise to those animals, and those animals were pictures of who? As Jesus. John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when we hear John the Baptist say about Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, he's saying, hey, hello, you know that whole uh, sacrificial system you got there in Day of Atonement? Guess what? Here's your Lamb, right? All the way back to Genesis, right? And, and Isaac, right? God himself will provide the Lamb. Well, John the Baptist says, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? So we have in the old covenant, we have types and shadows. We have pictures. So we have tabernacle and the temple, right? And what do, what do those things testify to us? Or what do they speak to, right? It's, it's God in our midst, right? And, and so, you know, that's why the tabernacle would be in the midst of the people of Israel, right? God is in the midst of us. Um, you know, funny thing is, you know, we have a word for that from the Hebrew, right? Emmanuel, right? Who, who is that spoken about? Jesus. There you go. I'm getting all the questions, right, Ben? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Jesus so is proud of you. She is going to be really proud. <laughs> so Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. You know, John speaks this way in the first chapter of his gospel that the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, right? He uses that same word. So, and Jesus will say too, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it. And he's speaking about himself. So we have, you know, the temple of God in human flesh. And we have even in the old covenant or in the old Testament, you know, when David wants to build this grand house for God, God says, you know, I, I don't dwell in a building made by human hands. You know, I am not such a small God that can be contained by your physical building. Um, and yet in his gracious presence, he, he does uh, 
he does dwell there in a special way, but it's not as if he is contained there. Um, but indeed here, the true temple comes among us in Jesus. And so, and so with that means that there's no need for a physical temple any longer because the true temple has come. So with the fulfillment in Christ, the shadows, the types and shadows go away. So there's no longer any more Levitical priesthood because there is the priesthood of Christ. Right? He is the high priest. Um, as the scriptures speak, after the order of Melchizedek, so not uh, Levitical priesthood. Um, you know, with the coming of Christ, the, the kingship, uh, the line of David uh, on the throne comes to an end. There are no future kings because Christ is the eternal king who was promised, right? God says to David, I will build you a house and I'll, you know, and your descendant will reign forever, right? You know, or we can go back to Genesis and, uh, you know, Jacob prophesies and says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, right? And Jesus is from the line of Judah and he reigns forever, right? So we see all of these things um, that come to an end with the fulfillment in Christ. So we have again in Acts chapter 10, is it Peter sees the vision of the great sheet, right? And God shows him a vision of all animals, both, you know, those that were considered clean and unclean. And he puts them together, you know, or is it just the unclean animals that he shows them? Anyways, um, he says, rise and eat. And Peter's like, no, I've never eaten anything that's unclean. And God says, what God is called clean, don't call unclean. And his whole point was, you know, he was preparing uh, Peter to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. And, and he was saying that those old distinctions, those old things have come to an end. Um, and Jesus himself speaks this way when he says, you know, he didn't come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them, right? He is the fulfillment of everything that came before. And so, we don't want to return to those types and shadows that have passed away. Um, as the author of Hebrews said, you know, it is growing old and passing away, right? And indeed has come to an end. So um, those would be differences. So it seems like, I mean, it's spurring on a lot of thoughts in my mind too, as you're talking about this, how much this connects with our revelation study because we're, we're wondering, you know, like what's Israel, national Israel's role in things today and in the future, right? And, and how is God working? Is it different for the church? You know, what's going on with all of those issues? Uh, you know, the Temple Mount and sacrifices and, and, and a lot of people focus on those things. But if we can put that in the context of the greater scriptural message, right? And what God was doing with Israel, and what the actual main purpose was um, in pointing to Jesus and that it's really about, you know, the, uh, the promise of God and people putting their faith in the promise and word of God and in the Messiah, Jesus, that he has provided um, and that he, he fulfills all of these types and shadows of the old covenant. Um, then we, we can start to see, you know, more clearly maybe what, um, what the point was and whether any of those other things are still necessary for the future. Um, and uh, so hopefully you're making some of those connections in your mind already, but this is again laying the groundwork for some of the more specific things we're going to talk about in the future here with this study. All right. Do you guys feel like we, uh, we covered the, the old and new covenants pretty completely? Are you ready to move on to the next point here? All right. I think we can move on. All right. 
Um, our next uh, point that we're going to take a look at today is eschatology uh, throughout the scriptures. Like we mentioned at the beginning, and I think it's come up a few times, you know, eschatology doesn't just take place in like a few Old Testament prophets and the book of Revelation, um, but it's something we see throughout all of God's inspired word throughout all the holy scriptures. Um, so what does eschatology look like as we look throughout the Old Testament? So maybe I could jump in and start us off with a couple things we've already talked about and make the connections. The first gospel proclamation in Genesis 3.15 is already, again, eschatology. It's studying last things where the seed of Eve, the offspring of Eve, would come and crush the head of the serpent. And we see that that points ahead to the beginning of the last days, we could call it, in Jesus actually dying on the cross and rising again as you know, the one that was foretold as the seed of Eve. But even that same seed of Eve was, is going to come back again in, in our future yet and finish that and toss the devil into hell, right? And, and so we see that even right from Genesis 3, we're talking last things. And, and yet, we, you know, that was not totally clear it, from Genesis 3.15, that promise was unfolding or flowering, you know, growing at, throughout the revelation of the scriptures. But it, it started out right away with that. And, and then in, in uh, the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12, we got the promise uh, that through Abraham's seed, that's the same seed of the of Eve, continuing on, that uh, through his seed, um, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then we see that same kind of promise going throughout the scriptures, but we see that that it's going to go to every tribe and tongue, and that you know, like the the gospel of Jesus Christ going forth through the church to the ends of the earth and that God's plan would continue to unfold um, until the full number of the elect are brought in. And so um, that's, you know, connecting beginning and end maybe. And I don't know if you guys want to jump in there uh, and, and show other things, but uh, right from the start, we're thinking last things um, in the scriptures. Yeah. And so just uh you know, again, you have real basic things, what you're talking about, Matt, that in the Old Testament, then everything is geared toward uh, the coming redemption, the coming Messiah. And and um, certainly there are some things that are kind of packed in there that, um, you know, from the prophet's perspective, he doesn't know exactly when they're going to happen and they can appear as one event and they end up being two events. But so so we do get, you know, again, stretching all the way to, uh, the last day, you know, throughout the Old Testament, but the primary focus there is the coming Messiah, right? So God creates the world, everything's good and perfect, Adam and Eve sin, now they have damaged everything, right? And from that point on, it's God's redemption is coming, his redemption is coming. And and it's not just a spiritual redemption, it is a physical a, a redemption of redemption of creation that is so then we look forward to um you know all the way to the end with the restoration of creation and the eternal new heavens and new earth um but so old testament looks forward to the messiah coming um new testament basically messiah is here 
right? He has come, he has fulfilled the old covenant, um, and then, you know, he has won atonement and so on and so forth. Um, and then he ascends into heaven, right? And he will come again on the last day. And really in between those two points is the Great Commission. And so the church goes about the work of preaching the gospel, of making disciples by baptizing and teaching until Jesus comes back. And so we kind of see that's the, the basic scope um, in regard to eschatology. Um, I don't know what else you want to say about that, other than there are past, present, and future aspects to eschatology, just as there are past, present, and future aspects to salvation, which is what eschatology is concerned with. Um, and so, you know, we have, we could say what we live in now is the tension between the already and the not yet. So we would recognize that Jesus, when Jesus came, he brought the kingdom of God with him and he inaugurated the kingdom. It is truly here. We are members of it, um, but we don't have the fullness of that yet. We're still waiting for what we may say the consummation of the ages, the fullness of the kingdom of God. And so, um, so when we talk about the last day, we're not talking about the end of time, as it were, but the end of the age, right? That's important for us to understand because scripture basically has the former age. We have the present age and the age to come, right? And during this time, there's an overlap with the coming of Christ. There's really an, an overlap between the present age and the age to come. So we participate now in the eternal kingdom of God, but we don't yet have the full experience of it. We will receive that on the day of resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and we'll probably come back to that kind of stuff again and again throughout, but um, I don't know. So um, <clears throat> inauguration and consummation were a couple big words here. Mike Natal, maybe quarter this Quarter words. Quarter yeah. words here. <laughs> uh, so can you give us uh, maybe some other, uh, like, can you guys think of some other ways of describing that, breaking that down? the inauguration and consummation aspects, uh, the coming of Christ, those things, uh, to maybe help uh, our listeners out a little bit? Um, to inaugurate something basically is to begin it, right? So um, we think of, you know, like the president gives an inaugural address when he begins his term in office, right? So, um, so when Jesus came, you know, the, age to come was begun as it were um age so to he, come was came <laughs> so uh he brought with him the kingdom of god and so it is here now um and we are in it but yet it's not so when you speak about consummation it hasn't reached its full expression yet we don't have the full experience of it so in the same way that you know those of us who um you know, in Christ by faith, we are new creatures in Christ, right? We have our sins forgiven, um, you know, and we have eternal life even now, but we don't fully experience that yet, right? That, that full experience is still coming. So that's what we mean by, by consummation. So the, the fullness, the full experience of the kingdom of God is not yet here. Um, and it is that for which we eagerly wait and hope for. Does that that helps to make uh, to make sense what's going on there yeah but for those of us that have iqs more like mike natal and i um it means okay. to start and then complete okay <laughs> yeah. that's, you know what's you know hilarious too is i was just waiting and i was gonna be like so bookends start and end are we good 
We're, we're Nailed it. We're Nailed it. There you go. <laughs> so um, you are also mentioned a phrase, uh, the already and the not yet. And that's a phrase that somebody coined, uh, but has become really widely used on, on these issues um, across a number of denominations, I think, too. Uh, uh, and so maybe you'll hear that. But uh, so the already and the not yet, it's, it's this tension idea that, um, of, of what, what is true. For instance, uh, to give an example of that in the scriptures, we are said, those of us who believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the redeemer of the world, we are said to be citizens of heaven and heirs of all things. And, and, uh, so right now, if you're a believer you are a citizen in heaven. Your name is written in the book of life. You, um, you are, are going to inherit everything that there is. Everything that belongs to Jesus, the Son of God, is yours uh, as well. And, and yet, there's, even though that's already a true thing uh, that, that is a reality in your life, there's already this not yet aspect where you are to remain steadfast in the faith until the end and where you're going to experience trials and tribulations and you might end up dying or Jesus will come still in the future. Um, and, and so you will not yet uh, fully experience all of those realities. Um, and we're going to see that tension continue on uh, throughout this, but I think it's a really helpful uh, way to talk about the, this uh, strange situation we find ourselves in, this tension uh, situation um, uh, as we talk about salvation and end times things. All right. Mike Cussie, this would be the perfect time for you to hop in and close us in prayer. Oh, okay. I suppose. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you so much for today, and we thank you for this opportunity to um, gather together and to hear your word. Lord, thank you for every opportunity we have to hear it. Lord, as we encounter your word, I pray that you would point out our sin and show it to us, show us all the ways we have fallen short of your glory, and allow us to confess it freely before you. But Lord, as we also encounter your word, I pray that you would point us to Christ and his finished work, which is enough even for sinners like us. As we continue to move forward in this uh, Bible study, working our way toward the book of Revelation, I pray that you would guide and direct us, and that you would ready all of our hearts to hear your word, and that you would make these things that are so confusing uh, so much of the time um, clearer, and that we might understand them, and by understanding them better, draw nearer to you. Lord, by your word, strengthen our faith, we pray. Amen. Man, I uh, I wish I looked more like Fabio in multiple ways with that long, luscious hair, but I promised you guys I'm running into the sunset. <laughs> there he goes. <laughs> that was amazing. Well, thank you, guys. And, uh, thanks for running away awkwardly into the sunset, Mike. Uh, I have to stop the recording. I haven't done it.